Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom on two different occasions, the first of which began in 1940 during some of the darkest days for the United Kingdom. This was when the Nazis were at the height of their power and, uh, and the English troops were being pushed out of Europe. He led that nation through the war and obviously the Allied forces uh, were successful and prevailed in that war. And Churchill is one of the titans of history. He's one of the, uh, you know, uh, he's really a, considered to be a lion among men. Uh, he's a great, was a, is known as a great uh, war leader, great politician. And he led that country through one of its most uncertain and troubling uh, seasons, days, years, months. And on one occasion, though, he got into it with a servant of his, and, uh, and Churchill said, you were very rude to me, you know. To which the servant replied, yes, but you were very rude to me. And Churchill said, yes, but I am a great man. Now, I think there are many things that are admirable uh, about Churchill. Uh, we might call him a great leader, a great politician, but obviously... Uh, his, his greatness was limited and did not extend to everything, into every area. Certainly, if he felt it enabled him to be rude and speak down to another person, uh, we have a problem. Uh, but the fact is, we, we use this word great of many people, but of course, there's only one truly great man, the Lord Jesus. And it's this great one, great man, that John the Baptist proclaimed and preached and that we're going to see him do in our text today. We might laugh, or we do laugh, I guess, some of us do, evidently, uh, at Churchill's um, response, and it is kind of funny. Uh, But the fact is, we are continually tempted to think too highly of ourselves, to make too much of ourselves. And even as Christians, it's helpful, we need sometimes a reminder of our place, and sort of where we stack up when it comes to the Lord and to, to Christ himself. So I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15. We're going to look at a sample of John's preaching. So we know, we've seen, he was a voice crying in the wilderness. He uh, pointed people to Jesus Christ. Uh, but now we're going to see him do this even more explicitly and see more of the substance of what his message was. And so when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to everyone else, there's no comparison to Christ. He, by far, is the greatest. So our our outline for today, for our time uh, in the Word, is is, uh, number one, the greatest man is unworthy of Jesus. Uh, That's verses 15 and 16. Uh, Number two, the greatest work belongs to Jesus, 16 and 17. And then the greatest price is worth paying for Jesus, which is verses 18 to 20. So first, the greatest man is unworthy of Jesus. So I'll invite you to read with me, starting in verse 15 of Luke chapter 3. It says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
So verse 15 gives us the occasion for uh, John's proclamation of Jesus, at least in this case. That is, the people begin to wonder if maybe he is the Christ. Maybe John's the Christ. That's what they're asking in verse 15. So there's maybe obvious reasons for this. His ministry was a powerful one. Uh, people listened. Many came and were baptized. He's, uh, many held him to at least be a prophet. He, he was baptizing even the Jews, which was a new thing. So this new thing is happening. Many consider him a prophet. He's a unique individual. And, uh, and so maybe he's the prophet who is to come that Moses said we should be looking for. Uh, but his answer to that is an emphatic, no, I am not the Christ. Uh, but before even we get into his response, uh, I think it might be helpful to just note what Jesus says about John. Just to, to, to well, I think it'll be helpful. So Luke seven twenty eight, um, Jesus makes this comment. He says, I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Speaking of John the Baptist, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's a remarkable statement from Jesus' lips to describe John. Very high praise. Now, his point in chapter 7, ultimately, uh, is that uh, John is is, uh, an old covenant prophet who's pointing forward, and anyone who's in the new covenant is greater than John, is what Jesus says there. Uh, But it doesn't take away uh, these these words uh, that Jesus says about John. He was indeed a great man. He was the last of the old covenant prophets, and according to Jesus, the greatest of them. So that's significant. That's who John is. That's who's speaking the words we're reading uh, today. And so this great John declares, in verse 16, his utter unworthiness next to Christ. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John might be great, according even to Jesus, but he is nothing compared to Christ. There's no comparison. And he, he shows this here in a couple of ways. First, he, he contrasts their work. So John, he says, baptizes with water, but then at the end of verse 16, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's work of baptism was not effectual. It was symbolic. It didn't actually, uh, it was symbolic of a greater reality. It, it didn't actually do anything for the person in the sense of it didn't actually wash them clean or unite them to Christ through the act of baptism. It was symbolic. But the baptism Jesus brings is effectual. It is with the Holy Spirit. So John's baptism, every other human baptism, symbolizes this great work of Christ, far greater than any human baptism. In commenting on this verse, John Calvin says, to men has been committed nothing more than the administration of an outward and visible sign. The reality dwells with Christ alone. So Christ actually actually cleanses, actually baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And water baptism, John's baptism symbolizes it. So 
We'll get to this more in a moment, but as I said, Christ's baptism actually saves, and water is symbolic of the actual saving work of Christ. So John's actions, they don't, they don't even come close to comparing to Jesus, right? One points ahead and symbolizes, and the other actually saves. Secondly, he compares their strength to show how unworthy he is. John refers to Jesus as he who is mightier than I. Again, this is seen, among other things, in the fact that Christ's actually able to save. Clearly, he's mightier. John cannot save any of the people listening to him, but Jesus can. He's mightier than John. But, of course, Christ's might stems from who he is. And though John doesn't develop this here, the fact is that John is inferior and weaker because he is not the eternal Son of God in human flesh, whereas Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. He's eternal. There's no comparison with that. John can't compete with that. He's not trying to. In the Gospel of John, in the first verse... We read, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then a few verses later, in verse 15 of chapter 1, it says this, John, the Baptist, bore witness about him, Jesus, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So Jesus is mightier and greater and ranks before John because he existed before John. And he's not just talking about he was born first because as we've seen in Luke, John the Baptist was actually born first to Elizabeth before Jesus was born of Mary. And so John's referring to the fact that Jesus pre-existed as the divine Son of God from eternity past. And John says, he's mightier than I. He's greater than I. He ranks before me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And so this Jesus, the one John's preaching, it's through him that all things were made. He's the one who upholds the universe. He's existed from eternity past. There's no comparison. And this is why John would later say, he must increase and I must decrease. Right? As, as, as Jesus' earthly ministry takes off in John 3.30, uh, when, when John's disciples ask him about this, that's his conclusion. You know, Jesus' disciples are baptizing. People are going to him now. What do we do? That's okay. He ranks before me. He must increase. I must decrease. Hebrew slaves, they weren't, they weren't even expected to untie someone's sandals. So that's a task that's even beneath a Hebrew slave. And yet John says he's not even worthy of doing that lowly, menial task for Jesus. That's how much greater he is. John, a great Old Testament prophet, none greater according to Jesus, and yet he pales in comparison to Christ, and he He knows that, and he preached that. One of the devastating effects of sin in our world is the arrogance that flows through human beings. Without exception, we are tempted to think too highly of ourselves. It can take different forms, but even many of us who have a lot of those 
woe is me uh, moments, uh, who maybe feel very uh, insecure a lot of the time, or maybe self-conscious about things, uh, often, I wouldn't say always necessarily, but often, that too is the result of pride. We would like to look a certain way, be thought of a certain way before others, uh, but we fear maybe not looking a certain way, and so we feel lowly and maybe sorry for ourselves and self-conscious. Often even that can be prideful. Often that can come as a result of just thinking too much about ourselves. But however, whatever form pride takes, the great cure for it is to see ourselves in light of Christ and in light of His perfections. In light of his greatness. Nobody's worthy to untie his sandals. If you think of the book of Hebrews, the basic thrust of it is the greatness of Jesus. And therefore, stay the course. That's my summary of the book of Hebrews. He's he's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than any Old Testament sacrifices. He's greater than, uh, than the Levitical priests. He enacts a salvation that's greater than anything else. He is the one you need. His righteousness, His payment for sins. The greatness of Christ should exhort us, lead us to strive for further humility. When you're tempted to be selfish, consider that this mighty one that John preaches and is unworthy of Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did that for you while you were yet weak and sinful. He took pity on you, and showed compassion to you, this mighty one, this great one. And now he is exalted, and the Father has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. No man, no woman compares with Christ. Nobody. None of us. Nobody else who claims to uh, be a Messiah of some sort, nobody comes close to Jesus. The Bible, Jesus himself warned of false Christs, but none of them can compare to him. None of them are worthy of his sandals. If John's not, none of them certainly are. He is the eternal Son of God. It's him we want and it's him we need. So no man, the greatest man, cannot compare to the greatness of Jesus. Secondly, the greatest work belongs to Jesus. It's his work. Not only is Jesus inherently greater, stronger, mightier than any man or woman, but there's no greater work to be accomplished than that which Jesus accomplishes. So we've already mentioned this, but let's look at this again. Read with me verse 16 again. John answered them all. Is he the Christ? Remember, that's the question saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn 
with unquenchable fire. So as mentioned, John contrasts two baptisms. His baptism with water, Jesus' baptism with the Spirit and fire. John's is symbolic, while Jesus' is effectual. It accomplishes something, a great work. Baptism with the Spirit, uh, this is sometimes misunderstood by some uh, to be some sort of a second blessing that we're supposed to seek after we get saved. So they would say, we, you know, we, we trust Jesus, we believe in him, and then we are to pursue some second blessing that's evidenced by speaking in tongues or some, some other thing. But this is not the case. That's not what this is. The baptism of the Spirit is the pouring out of the Spirit upon every member of the new covenant community, the church. In Acts 1.5, Luke tells us that this was fulfilled starting at Pentecost, this baptism with the Spirit. It was a new operation of the Spirit in that every member now of the new covenant community, every member of the church, received the Spirit's cleansing work. He's on every member of the new covenant people of God. It refers to the Spirit's work of taking a sinner and uniting them to Jesus Christ and to other believers, to one another. That is, we are made into one body. The Spirit applies all the benefits of Christ's redemption to those who trust in Christ. He indwells all who trust in Christ. And this baptism of the Spirit, therefore, comes upon all believers at their conversion. So listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and are all made to drink of one spirit. Paul's writing that of all believers, of all Christians. This is clearly for all believers. And so everyone who is in the new covenant has been baptized with the spirit. So some point to a couple of instances in the book of Acts... There's a few cases there where conversion, trust in Christ, and the outpouring of the Spirit on those people are separate occurrences, and people will point to these couple of incidences and say, uh, baptism of the Spirit, then, is some second experience that everyone should be pursuing. Um, But this fails in a number of levels. Certainly, it fails to account for the uniqueness of the book of Acts and the uniqueness of the time period that it describes. It's describing this time period where the old covenant is is passing away and the new covenant is replacing it. And so as there's a delay in the pouring out of the Spirit in Samaria with Philip and then a delay with Cornelius and the Gentiles, it's delayed until there's an apostle there to officially verify that yes, what's happening here is legitimate. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit. These Samaritans... These Gentiles are joining the church. It's not an exclusively Israelite thing anymore. These Samaritans and, uh, and, and Gentiles are part of this. So that, that, I think, explains what's going on in the book of Acts. And so if we understand it that way, that's describing this unique time period, then the teachings of, of the Bible on this, the teachings of the New Testament, quite nicely harmonize. That ordinarily, and for us, This comes, this baptism of the Spirit comes at conversion. 
This baptism is what was prophesied uh, in, in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. And it was the great promise of the new covenant. That all, there was coming a day when everybody who was in this new covenant would have the Holy Spirit. Not just some, like in the old covenant, some of the Israelites uh, believed uh, and, and lots of others in Israel did not. They were still part of the covenant people of Israel and yet not everyone believed. But in the new covenant, everyone will believe. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31 are places where that's pointed out. And so here, as John is saying Jesus will do this work, he's saying he's the one who comes and makes this happen. All that this has been prophesied long ago, and now Jesus is the one coming. He will baptize with the Spirit. And this will come on all new covenant members. On account of his mediatorial work, he will send the Spirit to do this work of renewal. And the Spirit will come and will apply this work of Christ to all believers. And so it is, Jesus baptizes with the Spirit, creating and sustaining the church, His new covenant people. But John also says He will baptize with fire. So He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's disagreement over what that means, what it means that he would baptize with fire. And the question is, is this to be, be viewed positively or negatively? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Do we want this baptism of fire or do we not? So uh, often fire, in fact, most of the time, that fire is not talking about a literal burning fire. It refers to judgment most of the time. And lots of people take it that way here. But I would suggest... Uh, that that's not what this is, that this is actually a positive thing, that this is a refining fire. And so, uh, regardless, uh, fire and judgment is part of John's message. So it's here either way, as is the saving work of Christ. So it doesn't radically alter, you know, John's message on the whole. Uh, So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but in the end, I take it to be a positive thing, that it's a refining fire, and, and, and I think really the main reason I would say this is that John says he will baptize you, one group, he says he will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. So he only references one group, this you, who seem to get baptized with both the Holy Spirit and fire. So I think if he wanted it to be judgment, then it would make more sense if he said he will baptize you with either the Holy Spirit, or with fire. But he doesn't. It's, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So there's two, at least, two Old Testament passages that refer to the coming Messiah's work in this way, as a fire, as a burning. Isaiah 4.4 4, uh, says that he will cleanse his people with a spirit of burning. That is a, it's a refining process. And then the Malachi passage that was read earlier Uh, likewise, speaks of the Lord coming to his temple and he's going to be like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. It's the idea of burning away the impure part of metal, refining that metal, uh, cleansing, washing. And so there there is Old Testament precedent uh, to understand it this way and that's what I think in this case John is talking about as he talks about a baptism of fire. It's a refining fire, a cleansing fire. 
The Malachi passage, I think, is particularly helpful because it describes both John's work and Jesus' work. So if you remember the passage, uh, it was preached several months ago, I guess, here, and then read earlier. Uh, You have this promise that a messenger is coming to Israel, who is ultimately John the Baptist. And then after that, the Lord will come to his temple. That's Jesus coming to his people. And then uh, Malachi passage talks about how he'll be a refiner's fire, fuller's soap. And then in verse 5, he gets to judgment. There will also be judgment. Here in Luke 3, we have John the Baptist. And he's talking about the mightier one who's coming. The Lord is coming to his temple. He will baptize with the spirit and fire. He will do a renewing work, a cleansing work in his people. And then as we'll see in verse 17, there's also an element of judgment to his ministry. So that's what I, that's what I think is happening here. So John is saying Jesus' work is a baptism of the Spirit and it's a cleansing fire, which is to say it it brings about a real salvation. It really does cleanse his people. It actually forgives sin. This is the greatest work imaginable. God and man being reconciled. The curse being reversed in man. This is the greatest possible work, and it belongs to Christ Jesus. Sinful hearts being purged of sin and made whole. Verse 17, though, also tells us there's more to this work. It shows the ultimate separation of those that belong to God and those who do not belong to God. Verse 17 describes this, and it shows us that this work also belongs to Christ. It's His to accomplish. So the picture in verse 17, which we read earlier, is of a threshing floor in which the chaff and the grain are separated. So uh, the the chaff and the grain would be thrown into the air together. The chaff being light would be uh, blown off and ultimately burned, and the grain would settle, and that's how you separate the two. And so for those who who trust in the Mighty One to come, who submit to him in repentance and faith, they will be saved and, as described here, will be gathered into the barn. They'll be collected unto God. They'll be brought to God safely, gathered to him. But as with chaff, those who refuse the Mighty One to come, who refuse to heed John's message, the gospel, they will be burned up, as John says, with unquenchable fire. This reference to fire, I would submit to you, is not ambiguous. It's not disputed. It clearly refers to judgment, as it did back in verse 9, which we saw last week, when he talks about the branches that don't bear fruit being thrown into the fire. Clearly, this is a fire of judgment. This final judgment of God's enemies, sinners who deny his glory, fall short of it, deny his greatness, though it's evident in the things that are made, who violate his commands, who refuse to submit to the Son, this judgment for those is described here and elsewhere consistently throughout Scripture as an unquenchable or eternal fire, which is a sobering reality, a sobering teaching, a terrifying one, frankly. I, I, I just re- read the other day, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching, 
and he's preaching about judgment, and he says, uh, you know, people accused him of just wanting to scare people with talk of judgment, uh, and he says, well, he says, yeah, if you're not going to come because of the Lord's goodness and for all the greatness of Christ and in delight for him, then yes, I would scare you. I would terrify you into coming that you would flee the wrath to come. So here it is, this unquenchable fire. It's sobering, it's difficult to consider, to think about, but this is justice according to God. And it might, it might offend our sensibilities or even what we think maybe is fair or right for God to do, but this is God's justice and it is good. And true justice will be carried out by Jesus. It's his work to do. He will save those who come to him, and he will judge those who refuse. It will happen upon his return. It will happen at a later time, ultimately, but it will happen. And So this is a cause for, obviously, self-reflection. Have I submitted to Christ? Have I believed in him? Do I trust in him? Have I heeded John's message, Jesus' message, the apostles' message, God's message to repent and to trust in Him. But also, if you are and if you have, then then this is cause for celebration, this work of Christ, His saving work, and ultimately His work of bringing about justice and even judgment. If you're trusting Christ, He will preserve you and save you and ultimately gather you into the barn. He will collect you. He will bring you safe to the Father. And eternity with Him awaits. That's a great work and a reason for us to to worship and a reason for us to press forward in hopefulness. What injustice do you resent that you see in the world? What suffering do you currently endure? What suffering in this world that you see breaks your heart? Jesus will bring perfect justice and judgment one day. What sin do you currently struggle with? Jesus will keep you. This is part of his work John talks about. He will gather you to the Father. Stay the course. Take courage. Nobody compares to him. No work compares to him. It's him we need ultimately in our corner. And he says, for those who repent and trust in him, he he will bring us safely home. He will save to the utmost. And so stay the course. Don't lose hope. This mighty one, this eternal one, is who you need. There's no one greater. There's no work that is greater than his work. Thirdly, the greatest price is worth paying for Jesus. This is basically the logical conclusion. If he's the greatest, his work is the greatest, he's the one we need, then anything is worth having him. Any sacrifice, any, anything that comes our way is worth having him. Whatever our lot, thou hast taught me to say it as well. It, I mean, anything is worth paying. Uh, read with me verse 18 to 20. So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But... Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. 
So we're told there in verse 18, John, uh, it's kind of a summary statement, John continued to preach good news to people. That might seem a little strange because he, verse 17 ends with him talking about judgment and the unquenchable fire, and so it is, you know, so he preached good news to people. That might seem odd, but the fact is that this message of Christ who is coming, who saves and judges and brings justice ultimately, this is good news. There is deliverance. There is forgiveness. There is grace offered by God to sinners. The word there used for uh, good news, it's the word for gospel. So John, John is preaching the gospel. He's preaching Christ. He's declaring good news. There is a way to be reconciled to God. There is one coming who will gather the grain into the barn. But, as John's teaching this good news, the text tells us Herod had him locked up in prison. The stated reason is that John had reproved or rebuked Herod because of his wife Herodias. Uh, and and uh, he rebuked him for various other evil acts, we're told. So Herodias had been married to Herod's, this is Herod Antipas, his half-brother Philip had married this Herodias. Um, but then Herodias divorced Philip, Herod divorced his wife, and then married Herodias. So this is immoral on many levels, but if you'll remember, Herod was also, uh, he was the Tetrarch of Galilee. He ruled over this area of Galilee. Uh, he submitted to the Romans ultimately, but he was Jewish. And so this, is, uh, this violates God's law very clearly. John proclaimed this, rebuked uh, Herod for this, and as a result, he's locked up in prison. So John calls out this unlawful marriage like a good prophet. He rebukes this leader for his various acts of wickedness and evil, and he's locked up. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who tells us that he was locked up in Herod's. Uh, he had a fortress castle on the Dead Sea. This is where John, he says, was locked up. He's thrown in there. And eventually, as we find out in Matthew 14, Mark chapter 6, Herod eventually takes John's head. So it's, it's, Herod's a tragic story if you read Mark 6. He's interested, he's intrigued. Uh, he doesn't want to hurt John on one hand, uh, and yet Herodias keeps pressuring for that to happen. Finally, an opportunity comes, and, uh, and because Herod doesn't want to look bad in front of other people, he agrees to it, and John is, is killed in prison. Christ, to John, was everything. And, ultimately, he paid the price for that. He paid the price by going to prison, and he paid the price with his own life. He was killed. He was martyred for preaching Christ. In Matthew, Jesus tells a couple of parables, short ones, about the value of the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Both of them making, I think, the same point that Jesus and his salvation, belonging to this kingdom, Christ's kingdom, is worth any cost, it's worth any sacrifice. And that's what John shows us in his life. He preached it, and it cost him dearly. He was killed for it. He has demonstrated that Jesus is worth any cost, 
as have many others as well. Salvation is granted by God in His grace. We can't pay for it. We can't earn that in any way. But it can be costly in the sense that the life of discipleship is one of laying down our lives and belonging wholly to the Lord. And that can come with cost. We can be persecuted. We can ultimately even be killed. It's happened. But since we are unworthy of the Lord Jesus, and since He is the greatest one there is, and since His work is undisputedly the greatest work that we so desperately need, anything that comes our way is worth it in order to trust Christ, in order to have Him. Whatever comes, it's worth it. It's worth any amount of suffering. It's worth 80 years of suffering and trial on this earth. It's worth any sacrifice we might possibly be called on to make, including the ultimate sacrifice. And we must not lose sight of that, whatever comes our way. Christ is worthy. He's great. It's Him we need. And it's Him we have by grace, through faith. And so let us press on and finish the race by that same grace. Jesus is undisputedly the greatest. John, the greatest of old covenant men, prophets, knew this. And he preached Jesus as the one that people needed. Indeed, this remains true today and it remains true forevermore. And the Lord Jesus is worth any and every sacrifice that we may have to make as a result of trusting in him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. We praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for sending your Son to die in our place, to die for sinners like us. I pray that above all things, Christ would be precious to us. I pray that we would be humbled before the greatness of Jesus, that we would be grateful to you, that you've taken pity on us. I pray that we would be those who are prepared soberly to suffer anything that comes our way for the sake of Jesus, clinging fastly to our salvation given to us by your grace. I pray that even as we do that, that we would be those who are joyful in our salvation, who celebrate and worship as the result of being right with you and of having this great mighty one for us. Thank you for the work of your spirit that has opened our eyes and regenerated us, united us to Christ, united us with one another have brought us into your body, the church, your temple that you're building. Thank you for the cleansing work of the Spirit. We pray you'd continue this work of cleansing and sanctification in our own hearts. God, we give you praise and thanks for just being good and being merciful and gracious to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.